There's an obvious argument that if you treat people well, it's good for them. We make the argument that when you treat people well, when you pay them more, it's actually good for the economy. A good pay doesn't guarantee a good job and low turnover, but low pay guarantees high turnover. If there's actually a competitive advantage to corporations creating good jobs. By that, we mean yeah. not just treating your workers well, but paying them well. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Goldie, today on the pod, we get to talk to a really super interesting woman named Zainab Tan. She has been beating the drum on a subject that I care a lot about, have always cared a lot about, you know, the business reasoning for treating people well. And, you know, I really believe that the, the business world sort of is bifurcated between two kinds of operations. This is an oversimplification. But on the one hand, there are the low road employers uh, run by jerks and sociopaths who treat people like chattel and who try to pay as little as they can possibly pay. And the people and, we've called parasites. Yes, all those folks. And on the other hand, there are people who believe that their people are their biggest asset and invest in them and build cultures of incredible integrity, intentional integrity and trust. And my view has always been that the latter massively outperform the former, because while it is possible to be a low road employer or a parasite and make money, at the end of the day, the high road employers tend to be the most successful enterprises. And the truth is you you have to be a particular kind of personality to run one of the low road employers if if you actually care about people it's very difficult on a day-to-day -day basis to treat them terribly if you don't care about people of course it's no problem and we see that everywhere in american business life but the you know the high road is always seemed both more logical and and sort of emotionally preferable to me and zainab has she spent a career analyzing this stuff and helping people move from the bad way to the good way. And I really do think she is on to something very, very important and something that needs more and more attention, particularly, you know, given the, the challenges in the economy today. Right. That there's actually a competitive advantage to corporations Creating good jobs. By that, we mean yeah. not just treating your workers well, but paying them well. And Goldie, you, you and I make the argument. Well, I mean, the traditional argument, of course, is always that treating people well is good for the people, right? Right. If, if, uh, if we can afford to do it, of course, Nick, because, you know, we can only afford to treat workers well when when there's economic growth and you can only get that by cutting taxes and wages yeah, and exactly. regulations. No, but you know, uh, th there's an obvious argument that, that if you treat people well, it's good for them. We make the argument that if, when you treat people well, when you pay them more, it's actually good for the economy, that the more money people are paid, obviously the more they have available to spend, which is where economic dynamism comes from. Right. And Zainab, 
is making a, a different version of this argument, which is, is actually good for business. It's actually good for the profits of the enterprises that engage in this, in this, which I think is an underappreciated uh, benefit of not being an asshole and, and a really important argument that uh, needs to be made nationally and, and internationally. Absolutely agree, Nick, which, which is why I'm so excited to have Zainab Tun on the podcast. She is the practice in the operations of management professor at MIT Sloan School of Management, also the president of the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute, and the author of a new book, which we highly recommend, uh, The Case for Good Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to Everyone's Work. My name is Zeynep Ton. I am a professor of the practice at MIT Sloan and the president of nonprofit Good Jobs Institute. And I'm the author of this new book called The Case for Good Jobs. So tell us uh, precisely what qualifies a job as a good one and what's the good jobs system? I'll mention the minimum requirements for a good job <laughs> because a good job could mean different things to different people. But in a good job, we need to feel like we are human beings, not a pair of hands. And I think we all know what it means to make feel like, you know, human beings. And in a good job, people have to get enough pay so that they have control over their lives. Unfortunately, these minimum conditions are not met for tens of millions of people in the United States. And when people, you know, when workers don't make enough to make ends meet, then in their, you know, in their job, then they end up juggling multiple jobs. They can't sleep. Uh, they're constantly stressing about whether they can put food on the table, pay their rent, and this ends up hurting their performance too. So when you're in this system where you're constantly thinking about pay, everything else that the companies do to create a good job, like belonging programs, recognition programs, pizza parties, those are just a Band-Aid on a wound. And, and I think we don't talk about pay as much. I know you do on your podcast, but in, yeah. the, in the business world, when people talk about a good job, and they're oftentimes thinking about good job in the context of turnover, how do we reduce turnover? And I can say a good pay doesn't guarantee a good job and low turnover, but low pay guarantees high turnover. Yeah. But a lot of companies and a lot of leaders uh, don't get to think about pay as much because those of us who make enough underestimate the importance of pay for workers, their ability to do a good job and for their dignity. And I think too many leaders mistakenly think that they can't afford to pay their employees more. Right. So this gets to one of the reasons why I was so eager to get you on the podcast. Uh, a lot of people understand that low pay, bad working conditions, that's bad for workers. You, you don't need to explain that too much. We've spent a decade talking about how low pay and uh, bad working conditions, that that's actually bad for the economy in the aggregate. But in your new book, you're addressing this at employers and you're making the argument that these low-paid jobs are bad for employers, that these low-wage jobs are bad for employers, and that these high-wage jobs, these good jobs, that's actually good for the employer and good for their businesses, if, if you could explain why. 
Exactly. So, so first of all, I'm an operations management professor, and, and I started looking at retail supply chains in late 90s. I've been looking at the cost of low pay for more than 20 years. And in our world of supply chain management operations, you know, it's all about managing product availability, and it's about algorithms like planning and analysis, forecasting demand, optimizing inventory levels. Early on in my research with my colleagues, I found that managing product availability was also about managing people. And oftentimes a product was at a retail store, but employees didn't have time to shelve it or they, didn't, they put it in the wrong place. So customers experienced a stuck out. The data that was used in planning systems were inaccurate because people made mistakes. So these operational problems that happened at retail stores were so expensive lost sales, poor merchandising decisions, high inventory costs, lower productivity. And when I looked into why do they happen all the time, I found one of the answers in high turnover, understaffing. So yeah. if we come to now why low pay is so expensive, there are these huge operational execution costs, lost sales, higher costs, low productivity. And then there are direct cost of turnover, which can be significant. We work with companies where, you know, um, they change their roster, entire roster in a year. Just the direct cost of turnover, which is, you know, recruiting, hiring, onboarding, training, time to full productivity, can be from 10 to 25% of overall labor dollars spent on payroll. So there are those direct turnover costs, there are huge operational execution costs, and when companies operate with high turnover, there are so many basic management practices that they just can't implement. And they end up creating a vulnerable, uncompetitive, and inhumane system. I couldn't agree more with the argument you're making. Um, and. This exploration of the interrelationship, by the way, uh, between low pay and low productivity is so, so important. But I just have to mention, I just had this vivid personal experience recently where I, I drove a long way recently from my house to go to the premier department store called Nordstrom's in the Pacific Northwest to buy some things for the summer. And I came away from that experience saying to myself, I would have bought literally three times as much stuff if the store had been better organized and the staff, I, I mean, I, I am a man, large size. And in every single product that I tried to find, there were no larges. And you would try to find somebody and they'd be like, well, maybe we have it in the storeroom. And then they'd go get it and it would be wrong. And it was just an astonishing experience. And by the way, Nordstrom's is a company in trouble, right? This is not a company that's thriving. And it's just, what would it cost to make it so that rather than only one in maybe four things that I looked at, I could actually buy if I liked, if I liked them to 80%. I mean, yeah, 100% is actually quite hard, right? As you know, in, in operations management, as you know. <laughs> yes, and I'm so glad you brought the customer's perspective because I realized I didn't answer Goldie's question about what's a good job system because the good job system is not just about higher pay. It's a system that's centered around the customer. It's, it's a system that helps companies win with their customers so that yes. you can find the right product 
at Nordstorms. There are people who can help you. But what do companies need for winning? They need a great team. Like any winning organization need a great yeah. team. So you have to invest in people and invest in people through higher than market pay, good benefits, etc. But then investment in people is only part of it. You also need to position that team for success. And the good job strategy, the secret sauce of the good job strategy or the good job system is a set of operational choices that enable high employee productivity and high contribution so that there's a high return on the people investment and so, so that they can serve customers better. I'll give you one example. I have four choices around the good job strategy that create the system for operational choices. And one of those operational choices is operate with Slack, which means staff your units with more hours of labor than the expected workload. Why would you want to do that? Because anyone who has ever taken an operations class would know that targeting 100% capacity utilization in a variable system, in a system that has variability, is a really, really bad it's idea. It's impossible. It's a it's terrible impossible. idea. Yeah. So if you go to Costco, for example, and by the way, Costco employees, you know, the average worker there in 2022 made $26 an hour, which is almost $10 an hour more than average retail worker. Um, if you go to Costco, you're not going to see a lot of products because one of the other choices of the good job strategy is focus and simplify. But you're going to see a lot of employees, unlike you saw at Nordstrom. Why is it that they have so many employees? Because that way they make sure that the shelves are in stock. They make sure that customers go through checkout quickly. They make sure that the fresh products are really fresh and they make sure that they have time to experiment with different displays. So they have time to constantly find new ways to improve, reduce costs. And because employees can contribute this much to Costco's success, Costco can pay them more and create, you know, opportunities for success and careers, not just jobs. That's right. And it's a, it's a, it's a virtuous cycle, right? The, exactly. The, the more capable and engaged the employees are, the more successful the business is, which means the more they can pay their workers and so on and so forth. It is a virtuous cycle, but that virtuous cycle is supported by decisions that are made in the home office of organizations by people who have nothing to do with people management. For example, at a place like Costco or at a restaurant, the decisions that are made by product design people, the menu design at a restaurant or digital, do we have takeout, do we not have takeout, those types of decisions affect the productivity of workers, which then affects whether the company can provide them higher wages or not. You go into detail in your book and in your articles on how much high turnover costs companies. Can you just expand on that a little bit for our listeners? I mean, the numbers are incredible. The numbers are incredible and the levels of turnover are incredible. Exactly. Um, so, so we, please, yeah, elaborate. Yes. So we have seen organizations um, have employee turnover levels ranging from 40% to 300%. A company that we're working with right now just broke the record that in Mexico, their units have 400% turnover. I mean, I've never seen that high, which means that a typical person stays there for like three months. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, can you imagine if you have a team made up of players who have not been there that long, 
how can you have expertise in that team? By the way, if you know there are the, the numbers aspect, but imagine being the unit manager of that restaurant or of that store or of that call center. What are you doing? How are you spending your time? You're constantly fighting fires because turnover goes hand in hand with attendance problems. So you're constantly filling in for people who didn't show up. You're constantly solving customer problems, equipment problems. That means you have no time to hire the right people and to train them. Even if the company has great hiring or training practices on paper, there's no time to hire yeah. the right people or train them. And so many companies are desperate for hiring. So if you make mistakes in hiring and you can't train a person, can you or would you want to empower Empower them to make decisions? Yeah, no, right? Much. I mean, <laughs> and if you can't empower your employees, can you offer great service to your customers? Can you win with your customers? So, so there are so many, there are the numbers that I can talk about, about employee turnover, but there are also all these business practices that we see happening that hurts customers, that hurts productivity, and that creates an inhumane workplace. It's almost as if you're telling us that there's no such thing as unskilled labor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, of course, there is no such thing as unskilled labor. I, I worked, <laughs> I've looked at warehouses, I've looked at distribution centers, retail stores, restaurants. There are ways that corporate leaders design jobs for interchangeable parts, and that ends up being a mediocre job design. Off the top of your head, can you contrast in the same industry the difference between a company that is the, the turnover that you have in a in a company that is doing a good job versus a company that's doing a terrible job? Oh yes, and when I say good job versus a terrible job, I'm I'm not saying the good jobs companies operate five percent, ten percent better they operate in a completely different paradigm. For example, in the convenience store chain industry, this is, you know, 7-Elevens of the world, for full-timers, the employee turnover in 2019 was about 107%. It might be 109%, but it's over 100%. For Quick Trip, it was about 20%. It's one-fifth of the industry. At Costco, employee turnover is about 17%. For people who have been there for more than a year, it's something like 7%. There are a bunch of people who have been there for 10 years, for five years. So the differences are insane between the companies that operate with low turnover versus high turnover. Now, what happens if your turnover level is one-fifth of the industry average? That means that now for every new worker, you can spend five times as much on hiring, on training, on performance management without increasing your hiring, training, or performance management budget. Can you imagine like the competitive advantage that these companies have when they operate with such low turnover? There are so many other things that they can do. For example, they can ensure that their customers don't wait. They ensure that their customers get service from people who are empowered, who know exactly what they're doing. They can ensure that their employees can constantly improve performance. These are all the things that are not available to companies that operate with high turnover. It's so obvious, <laughs> yet the differences are so stark. It's so interesting. So what do you think 
are the barriers to people not employing better practices? Is it stupidity or rapaciousness or ideology? Yeah. I, what is it? B that... Bad econ 101 textbooks. Yeah. All of the, well, no, I won't say all of the above because I don't think it's stupidity, but I will say, you know, the former US CEO of Walmart, Greg Foran, when he read my first book, the first book was called The Good Job Strategy. There was an interview with him and he called Harvard Business Review. He said, this is blindingly obvious. And no academic likes to think of her work as blindingly obvious, but I'll take it because, you know, the, the, the pillars of the good job strategy really are blindingly obvious, um, the, the four choices. So, so if it is so obvious, why aren't more yeah. leaders choosing this? I think the first reason, and I'll just mention like three big reasons. These are not all the reasons. The first big reason is lack of imagination. Generations of leaders in this country and others have been taught that labor is just another cost, right? Just another input to production, just another cost. And therefore, market pay is the right pay, even if it's not a living wage. And they have also been taught that lean and mean is what drives efficiency when lean and mean isn't efficient. So these leaders can't even imagine a different system. And yeah. what makes it even harder for them to imagine is siloed decision-making, often using historical data. Now, good job strategy is a system, it's a paradigm shift, and companies that adopted it didn't improve just a little bit, they improved a ton. I'll give you one example. Sam's Club is one of the companies that adopted the good job system recently. They've not only reduced their turnover so much, but they've also improved productivity, they've also improved their same-store sales growth. One of their leaders recently told HBR that historically they could improve their efficiency 1%, and even that was difficult. And the last few years, they improved it by 20%. No amount of data analysis looking at historical data would have helped them imagine that they could have made that much improvement. Yet we teach our students how to make you know, cause and effect relationships in isolation using historical data. So, so that makes it even harder to imagine. So lack of imagination is the first, uh, first reason. The second is that many leaders think that system change is just too risky. And you know, they're oftentimes in their positions for just a couple of years. They have a short time horizon. They think about their reputation. They think about their jobs. And so they resort to easier and quicker fixes that have more legitimacy in the eyes of investors and the board. Yeah. Um, and the truth is that the playbook for bad jobs is simpler. You know, you pay as little as possible. Yeah, you it's depend, easy. It's, it's easy. Mm -hmm. you, it's you path depend, of least resistance. Yeah. yeah, and you depend as little on the front lines as possible. And the playbook for good jobs is harder. One of the executives at a workshop yeah, said- Yeah, you have to be good at your job, actually. It you have to actually competence. be good at it. Yeah, it, it requires does. competence. <laughs> exactly. It requires competence. And yeah, there's a million other things to mention around that. <laughs> but the third reason, the third reason, and this might be the hardest to overcome, is that a lot of leaders find it hard to trust frontline workers. So the good job system requires empowering frontline employees. Now, at companies that operate with low pay and high turnover. And low pay has all sorts of effects on people. I'm sure you have covered it in your podcast, yes. right? Mental, physical health, cognitive functioning, it even drops people's IQ, right? Yeah. By 13 points. So when leaders see 
frontline employees having attendance problems because they didn't have bus money, right? Because of whatever yeah. was happening in, in their lives. They see them not being able to focus on the job, making mistakes even for simple, simple jobs. They see them not treating customers well. And then they ask themselves, are they really worthy of higher pay? And, and that lack of trust, you know, this management scholar at MIT called the Theory X Managers, that is a, a, a huge barrier to, uh, to choosing the good job strategy. Also, to a certain extent, it's riskier, right? Especially if you're making a transition from a bad job strategy to a good job strategy, is you have to put a lot of faith in the future, right? Because if you're doubling the pay of your employees, for example, from the minimum wage to, uh, to a living wage, there is obviously some financial risk there. But obviously, you know, I'd argue it's a good, it's a good risk. Well, I, I, I agree with you that you have to have faith. One of the leaders said it's like buying a computer. You know it's going to increase your productivity. You just, you just can't quantify it in advance, yes. right? Mm -hmm. um, but conviction is really important. The risk is a lot less than what we might think. And that's yes. why I wrote this book. And the leaders who did this recently, Nick, they, they have made huge in investments in, in their employees. I mean, Mudbay. Uh, maybe because you're in Seattle, you might know Mudbay. It's a pet store. Within three years, they increased pay by 24%. And this is a company that had 2% profit margins and labor costs were 15% of their overall costs. You do the math, 24% yeah. pay improvement. Yeah, could have wiped out their profit, but they did other choices to increase productivity. And the reason that it's not risky is, first, the status quo is riskier. And for, for these leaders, the conviction came from, look, for us to grow and survive, we have to win with our customers. For Mudbay, e-commerce was taking away sales from them, from all the other pet store retailers. So the question was, what does it take for us to create a compelling reason for our customers to come to us so that we can grow and prosper? And they realized it would be through offering their customers consultative selling. And then the next question was, could we provide that type of selling and a great environment if we operate with high turnover? The answer was no. Then the next was, could we reduce our turnover if we don't increase pay? The answer was no. So it was a very logical conclusion. And it's, it wasn't just Mudbay. It was for Sam's Club, which is a public company. It was for uh, Quest Diagnostics, call centers, which is also a public company, for many other companies. So, so the conviction comes from that clear logic and then there are ways that you can make this change so that it's not risky so we have worked with a bunch of organizations now to help them see that you can make certain operational choices along with people investment as early as possible to get out of the vicious cycle that you are operating in and it doesn't break the bank so we tell companies invest in pay as much as possible as early as possible and along with that investment, look at all the things that you're offering your customers. Look at all the work that your frontline employees are doing and ask yourselves, which of these things can we remove? Which one of these things can we reduce? And if you can find ways to reduce workloads, then you're already paying for higher pay investments. And making these choices together along with increasing expectations is a way to minimize the risks of system change. And, and create momentum. Given the reluctance of CEOs to make this change and embrace the good job system, 
How useful would a high federal minimum wage be to kickstart that virtuous cycle? So one of our students at MIT Sloan is actually studying this exact issue, and she's looking at what happens at different um, cities and states that increase minimum wage to employer policies and what happened, right? Because you might make the argument that if minimum wage increases, then people are going to, if for those leaders who think that people are just a cost, then they're going to find substitutes. They're going to look at understaffing, you know, do more with fewer people or use technology. That's a very limited, bad way to handle minimum wage increases. But the other way to handle minimum wage increases is to say, huh, my input costs, those costs are increasing. How do I design a system to increase the production, productivity, and contribution of my workers? So it could encourage more leaders to choose the good job strategy because it will be necessary for them to be able to stay in business and serve their customers to design a system that creates high productivity and high employee contribution. Can we go back to the Costco versus Sam Club example? Because I believe Costco now has approximately three times the revenue of Sam's Club, but it also pays its workers significantly more, correct? So until 2019, that was correct. So, so Sam's Club is one of the companies that I talk about in the book. Yeah. Um, in 2019, they started their pay increases okay. and, and the pay increases came along with other other things that I talk about in the Good Job Strategy, they simplify, they use technology, they cross-train their employees, um, etc. But they made pay raises five to seven dollars an hour from a basis of fifteen dollars of an hour for tens of thousands of people early on, and those were life-changing pay raises for employees. And along with pay raises, they created stable schedules, which they called block schedules. Yeah. Uh, so give employees predictable, stable, consistent shifts. And once they started getting the benefit of those pay raises, they created momentum, then they began raising the pay of everyone else. And from 2018, I think, to 2020, within a two-year period, they made further almost 18% more pay raises to their employees. So there used to be a huge gap between Costco and Sam's Club, and that gap is not really there anymore. Oh, and by the way, there used to be a huge gap between their performance. So Sam's Club, in 2017, they were losing their members. They were Their same-store sales growth was not increasing. Their productivity was low. Their turnover was so high. Since then... They cut their turnover 25%. Since then, they had so many quarters of positive and double-digit same-store sales growth. Uh, Doug McMillan, uh, a couple, I think this was two years ago, during one of the investor meetings, he said, I've never seen this much momentum at Sam's Club. So Sam's Club, I think, shows us that you, you can be a huge company and a public company and still do this. Yeah, I remember when when McMillan announced uh, first announced that he was uh, raising starting wages at Walmart, and the stock took a huge hit. Um, I, I guess he's laughing at them now, huh? Yes, and and I'll say one of the things that fascinated me about Sam's Club. I remember meeting their CEO John Ferner. We were having dinner, and two minutes into our conversation, he saw my admiration for Costco and Jim Senegal. And Jim, you know, Jim comes to my classes every year, and and Costco has 
run a Reeve fantastic business. So, so he saw my admiration for, for Costco and, and his first comment to me was, look, Costco and Sam's Club both started in 1983. Costco has had two CEOs since they began. I'm Sam's Club's 14th CEO. Right. Now you do the yeah, math. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Realize, right? <laughs> this person isn't that gonna is gonna be in that position for just a few years. He's under tremendous performance pressure. But what did he do? He decided to win with the customers, with the members. And the way to do that, once you choose to be customer centric, like the good job strategy, then just follows. Ah, so high high turnover is bad for CEOs too. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. They need that on the job training. By the way, Costco was founded by both Jim and Jeff Rotman. Jeff Rotman, yes, uh, and he passed are, away. Yeah, who yes. are dear friends. You know, it's a Seattle-based company. Um, Do you know Jim? Of course. They, they're uh, both extraordinary people. I have a whole chapter, Nick, almost about Jim. Yeah, All the both things as, I've learned from him. Both as business people, but also as citizens uh, and civic actors yes. in our city. Uh, both extraordinary people. And, you know, their business operations... Uh, philosophy very much mirrored their sort of civic and personal personalities. They were yes. both, uh, Jeff was and Jim is, they were just extraordinarily generous, thoughtful, good people. And they ran their business that way and it paid huge dividends. Exactly. And there was a lesson there for <laughs> for other it, CEOs. Exactly. And when Jim <laughs> comes to my class, I think yeah. the students, you know, they, they think about this is too good to be true, but then they meet him and he go he walks through his logic and why he makes certain decisions and the students realize that you know integrity is a habit for him yes. and, and for Costco and a competitive advantage and an advantage yeah and yes. and Costco is not alone you know there are other yeah. companies we oftentimes complain about CEOs and companies but there are others like HEB is another great example where integrity is a habit you know, again, we could drone on and on and on about this, but, you know, I've always believed that operating, because it's not just frontline employees that get dramatically more productive when you treat them well and pay them well. The entire team works much better in, an, in a business enterprise if you operate with rigorous integrity. Exactly. Management exactly. teams work insanely more effectively if you operate with integrity because trust is a lubricant in businesses. Trust is what enables people to make good decisions every day to further the enterprise rather than spending 70% of their time sort of covering their asses and sub-optimizing processes to make themselves look good. Exactly. It, it just it goes all the way through the organization. But often the frontline workers are the ones that are excluded from this. Exactly. Exactly. We all understand that trust is important at, at a high level at the corporate headquarters, but building a business based on distrust and when companies treat their workers as interchangeable parts because they they operate with high turnover, it's impossible to create trust. Headquarters don't trust front lines yeah. and the front lines don't trust the headquarters because yeah. when all the decisions are made centrally, some of those decisions are not good. They don't work in the front lines. Some of them are even like comically bad. Yeah. And, and then they don't trust the competence and, and goodwill of headquarters. And there's a, there's a constant distrust uh, loop. Jim told my students, he said, 70 cents of every dollar we spend to run our company 
goes to people. And that tells you how important people management is. This is a people business. And if you don't do that well, you're going to screw up your company pretty badly. And by this time, my students had seen how many ways companies screw up their business when they go cheap on their most important value driver, and which is their people. So is there, there anything we've missed here that you, that you think we should discuss? Oh, I don't know. I can talk to you for hours. I ho- Sorry, yeah. like I go on and on. But- no, 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 no. no. That's, our pro- that's our problem too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we don't want to take up your whole day. And unfortunately, we can't do a two-hour podcast. Because uh, <laughs> really? we care about our customers. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. To be customer-centered, you yeah. have to get to the point. Uh, so uh, final question, Nick? Well, we have two final questions, which is, um, Goldie, why do I always the forget benevolent the, 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 the benevolent dictator. That's what you are, dicti- Nick, a benevolent dictator. I know, dictator. I'm a bene- benevolent We're, dictator. What, yeah. uh, we have a benevolent dictator question, which is, if you could do anything, if you could rearrange things any way you wanted, what would you do? What policies would you implement? What things would you encourage uh, to make the world a better place? You know, this is so against how I think in terms of systems, Mm -hmm. because if there was one thing, it would be so obvious, but we need to create better systems. And if it was one thing, maybe I would work to change people's mindsets about people and what it means to run a successful organization. Great. And the final question is, why do you do this work? (laughs) Well, as, as we've been talking about, you know, leaders have a choice in how they run their business. And I've seen how much that choice can impact the lives of workers and everyday interactions between workers and customers. And, you know, the good job strategy is not a feel-good choice. It's a profit-maximizing choice. So I do what I do so that more leaders make that choice and so that more leaders think differently about what it means to run a good business. You know, every year I get to teach 170 MBA students and many more executives at MIT Sloan, and that's a real privilege. And at, you know, Good Jobs Institute, I work with my former MBA students, and it's a privilege to be able to help companies adopt a good job system. So that's, I guess, on an intellectual level and on a more personal level, I feel an obligation to do something that's useful with the abilities and knowledge and platform that I have for for this country. I came to the United States with a valuable scholarship and this country gave me a free education and gave me citizenship and I do this work because this is my way of serving. That's fabulous. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me. There is this myth uh, that has long existed about Henry Ford and the $5 day, which is that he decided to more than double the wages of his employees because, as he said after the fact, he wanted uh, Ford workers to be able to afford to buy Ford cars. Uh, And that demand-side argument has largely been spun up as his reasoning for dramatically increasing the wages of his workers. But the truth is, that's not what he told his board at the time. His board, by the way, that 
really objected to the idea. What he told them at the time was, hey guys, we have 300% turnover at this giant factory we just built, and we cannot possibly run it at capacity when we are hiring people, turning over multiple times a year. And so if we outpay the other car manufacturers, we will get the best workers, and we will have the least turnover. And within a year, they reduced their 300% turnover to something around 30, 35% turnover. And the rest of the industry was in fact forced to follow. That is the real story of the $5 day. After the fact, he made that other argument because it sounded really good. But the fact was those Ford factories were a hellhole of undertrained workers with high absenteeism and horrific accident rates. People were losing fingers and hands and arms all the time in the machinery there because they didn't know how to operate it. I did not know that. That's amazing. Right. So it turns out that, of course, we've known for a hundred years <laughs> that right. paying your workers better uh, reduces turnover, increases productivity, increases utilization of your capital investment, increases profits. And yet there has been this this ideology that said, no, 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 you want to you want to keep workers are cogs. Uh, you want to pay them as little as possible because that's, you know, it's just another input, which you want to lower your costs. <sighs> Which is why it was so exciting for me when I read, when I first read that article in Time, and then I saw Zeynep's book saying, no, actually, you know what, uh, this is good, this is good for uh, employers too, the high yeah. pay. And Goldie, it strikes me that, you know, uh, Zeynep's central point is very middle out, mm -hmm. right? I mean, she is making this very full-throated argument for treating people better both paying them more and treating them better and making a very full-throated argument that by doing so, the people doing that will benefit too, right? right? It, this is the central, out, yeah. It turns out, Nick, you know, President Biden keeps saying that the economy grows from the middle out. Well, you know what? So do individual businesses. That's right. Absolutely. It's the same principle, uh, just on a smaller scale. It's just really exciting to see somebody like Zainab with the status and prestige that MIT gives her, making yeah. this case to CEOs that, no, this is actually the better way to run your business. This is yeah. the way to outcompete the competition. Absolutely. Such an interesting conversation and such a great project. And uh, y'all should buy the book and give it to your bosses. <laughs> <laughs> You will find, as always, we'll have, we have links in the show notes. Uh, you can find her book, The Case for Good Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to Everyone's Work at your local independent bookstore or, you know, online at that, uh, the big book monopolist that's so easy to buy from. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. 
Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.